This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. On November 21st, 1987, in Holland, Michigan, newlyweds Rick and Gail Brink had just returned to their peaceful country home on Ransom Street after attending another couple's wedding reception. Although the house was a work in progress, Rick and Gail looked forward to eventually creating a lifetime of memories there. Tragically, it was a future they'd never share. Join me now as we take a look into a case that horrified a community leading investigators down dead-end trails for over 25 years, fearing they'd never find the killer. You'll learn how dark family secrets have a way of creeping to the surface and the lengths people would go to to keep them contained. Spring in Holland, Michigan is like a scene straight out of a Hallmark movie. Known across the country for its spectacular tulip festival and old-fashioned timeless homes and businesses, Holland seems untouched by the ever-changing world around it. Situated on the shores of Lake Michigan, it's as close to a tropical beach as it gets in the Midwest. It's here where Wendell and Dorothea Weingarten raised their eight children. Their youngest, Gail, was born on April 24, 1965. With such a large family, money was often tight, but whatever the children lacked materially was made up for in spades by the love and warmth their parents provided. Gail was vivacious and charming almost from the start, but she always showed mild dissatisfaction as she lived without new toys and clothes that the other children in the area always seemed to have. As she grew up watching her parents struggle to put food on the table, she gained an exceptionally strong desire to work for what she needed and wanted. Even declaring to her siblings one day, she wanted to have enough money to go buy something if she wanted it, even if it meant working hard and getting her hands dirty. True to her word, Gail found a job as a waitress as a teenager, and her shining smile and outgoing personality won her many admirers at the local cafe gaining her plenty of extra tip money from grateful customers. At the cafe, men flirted with Gail constantly, including the occasional unsavory character. Her family did their best to protect her, in particular her older brother Ryan, 
who took it upon himself to be a protector. Only two years older than Gail, the siblings were extremely close, and Ryan always got nervous whenever Gail got involved with men. One of Gail's first serious boyfriends was a construction worker named Lars. They met when she was 18, and it wasn't long before they moved into a house they built together. Lars was a talented builder, and Gail shared his love of making things with her hands. Ryan, however, had his misgivings about the relationship, but because the couple seemed quite happy with each other, he and the rest of the family kept their distance. Gail and Lars spent a year living in their new home, and it was clear to everyone Lars was head over heels in love with Gail. But when Gail was 19, her attention strayed in a different direction when she met Rick Brink, a 25-year-old contractor who was a supervisor for the Trendway Corporation. Rick was instantly taken by Gail, and the feeling was mutual. They shared similar interests and the same sense of humor. It didn't take long for Gail to make up her mind. She wanted to be with Rick and broke the unfortunate news to Lars. He didn't take it well. In fact, he was devastated, especially that Gail had chosen someone else over him. As Gail packed up her belongings to move out, Lars slammed Gail's hands in the drawer she was pulling clothes from. Then he struck her in the face, giving her a black eye. Managing to escape the house without further injury, Gail told Ryan about what had happened. When he heard the news, Ryan was furious and went to find Lars. When he finally did, Ryan punched Lars in the face, breaking his nose, and then he warned him to never touch his sister again. However, the intensity of the breakup didn't last long. Gail and Rick were so smitten with each other, it seemed Gail had already forgotten all about Lars. On April 25th, 1986, the day after Gail's 21st birthday, Gail and Rick got married, much to the joy of their families. The happy couple boarded a cruise together for their honeymoon before returning to Holland, Michigan to find a home together. After a brief period of house hunting, they fell in love yet again, this time with a pleasant little fixer-upper on Ransom Street in Park Township near Lake Michigan. Rick's father purchased the 20-acre property for the newlyweds, only paying pennies on the dollar for it after the bank foreclosed on the previous owner. It was old, run down, and thoroughly trashed. It didn't just need some TLC. It needed new cabinets, fixtures, and wiring. It needed everything. But Rick and Gail weren't put off and happily moved in, excited to renovate their new home and make it their own. Gail had experience building houses from her time with Lars, and she and Rick immediately rolled up their sleeves and dove right in. The work was hard, but they were happy, fantasizing about the possibilities for their future. Gail's older sister Cheryl came by to visit frequently, marveling at their progress and sharing in her sister's happiness. Gail excitedly confided to Cheryl, the next room they planned to fix up was for the baby they hoped to have, sooner than later. Throughout the couple's first 18 months of marriage, Rick and Gail transformed the rickety old house into a warm, inviting home. They were giddy, goofy, and utterly in love with their lives together. But that was all about to change. 
On Saturday, November 21st, 1987, Rick and Gail took a break from their home renovations to attend a wedding of one of Rick's co-workers. They celebrated throughout the evening before heading back home after the reception around 11 p.m. But on Monday, November 23rd, Rick and Gail's parents would receive disturbing phone calls from their employers. Neither of them had shown up for work that day, and no one was able to contact them. Concerned, Rick's boss and his parents drove out to his home for a welfare check. Parked in the driveway was Rick's Chevy Blazer. When they looked in the cab, they discovered a sight that would haunt them forever. Rick's lifeless body was crumpled onto the floor of the cab, his feet and knees curled beneath the steering wheel, while his head, which had two gunshot wounds, rest on the passenger seat. And there, in the passenger side window, was the unmistakable shape of a bullet hole. Shocked and devastated, they ran into the home to search for Gail. Tragically, they found her body motionless on the couple's waterbed, with a pillow covering her head. Three bullet holes had penetrated that pillow. The discovery was grisly, and as family members were alerted to the tragedy, collective despair radiated through the hearts of everyone who knew the couple. A desperate cry for justice flooded the police. Unfortunately, the police were at a complete loss. There was no sign of the 22 caliber gun responsible for the murders, no unexpected fingerprints they could trace, and no shell casings found at the scene. Investigators were baffled that such a grisly murder scene was turning up no clues. Rick and Gil were well-liked in the community, and it was hard to imagine anyone wanting them dead. But this didn't look like a simple home invasion or robbery gone wrong. Nothing obvious had been taken. None of their jewelry, cash, or other valuables seemed to have been disturbed throughout the home. This looked more like an orchestrated murder. It looked personal. With no clear suspects or motives for the killings, police proceeded by the book, starting with those closest to the victims, interviewing friends and family, hoping to shed some light on who could have possibly done this. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Among those interviewed was Gail's brother Ryan and his girlfriend, Pamela Marcini. When asked where they were the night of the crime, they claimed to be doing laundry at a friend's house, and the alibi seemed to check out. Ryan then told detectives about Gail's ex-boyfriend, Lars, whose nose he'd broken after he assaulted his sister. He suggested Lars still might have been upset over losing Gail to Rick, sending detectives on their first real lead. After being interviewed by detectives, Lars was also subjected to a polygraph test, which he passed. Although he confirmed Ryan's account of their altercation, he also provided an alibi that detectives were able to confirm. With Lars and Ryan seemingly off the hook, the case appeared to be going cold. 
until police received surprising information from someone they never expected to walk into the station. Sidney Colby, a man that went by the name Shotgun Sid, a drug dealer and member of a Detroit outlaw motorcycle gang. He was also the former owner of Rick and Gail's home. When Shotgun Sid occupied the house on Ransom Street, it was a hub of illicit activity and his base of operations, running drugs for the motorcycle gang. He was also a criminal informant for the police, helping bust dealers selling drugs near the local high school. Sid believed it was possible he'd actually been the target of the murderer. He then described to police several instances he'd run afoul of rival gang members for being a criminal informant, even being shot a couple of times. He thought it was a possibility Rick and Gil had been attacked by gang assassins looking for him. With this new lead, detectives focused their time and resources investigating motorcycle gangs and the underground drug circuit operating out of Detroit in hopes of finding anything connected to the murders. But after an exhausting search, they found nothing to link any of the gangs to the quiet house on Ransom Street. Christmas Eve, 1987, nearly five weeks after the Brink murders, another horrific murder shocked the bucolic town of Holland. A young woman named Deborah Wilson was brutally stabbed to death. Her body was discovered in a field less than a mile from Rick and Gail's house. Naturally, detectives wondered if the murders were connected in any way. Deborah was around the same age as Rick and had attended the same school. They even had some mutual friends. The knowledge that three gruesome murders were committed within a mile of each other sent the community reeling in shock and terror, and it didn't take long before the people of Holland began to suspect a serial killer was on the loose. Detectives searched long and hard for any sort of connection tying the two cases together, but after weeks of digging, they came up with nothing. Ultimately, both cases went cold and police stopped searching. Gail and Rick's families grieved in silence, spending every day coming to terms with the idea they'd never see justice for their loss, and they wouldn't, not for more than 20 long years. In 2009, the Ottawa Sheriff's Department opened up its first cold case unit, bringing in a pair of outsiders, detectives Venus Repper and Dave Blakely, a fresh pair of eyes on the county's most notorious cold cases. Because they weren't from Holland, their view of the cases were completely unbiased and neutral, allowing them to potentially see what local detectives might have missed. They hoped to bring much-needed closure to the victims' families with modern technology and a new perspective. The first case they examined was the murder of Deborah Wilson, but when their prime suspect died before they could close the case, they shifted their focus on the murders of Rick and Gail Brink. Detectives Rapper and Blakely began poring over the evidence and a mountain of ancient files, re-interviewing all the old witnesses and connections, as well as many who were overlooked by investigators in 1987. Over a two-year period, the detectives performed over 200 separate interviews, but it was something from the old box of files 
that gave them their first lead. When Ryan and his girlfriend Pam were originally interviewed by police, they claimed that on the night of the murders, they were doing laundry together at a friend's house. But when Pam was asked again during a polygraph if she was with Ryan on the night of the murders, she answered no. It remains unclear why the discrepancy in her statements were never investigated back in 1987, but for Repper and Blakely, it was the needle in the haystack they'd been looking for. In early February 2012, detectives decided to visit Ryan and Pam once again, who'd long since been married and raised children together. Although Pam wasn't home, Ryan was and answered the door. The years had aged him, and he seemed surprised to see detectives on his doorstep after so much time had passed. After inviting them in, Ryan willingly answered all of the detectives' questions. He even seemed oddly casual about the incident, claiming he'd forgotten more distinct details about the case after nearly 25 years. With Ryan proving to be a dead end, detectives decided to shift their focus to Pam and asked for another interview. They wanted her to refresh them on some of the details of the case, but when Ryan learned detectives wanted to speak with his wife, suddenly his interest in the case grew exponentially. Whenever she spoke with detectives, Ryan insisted on being there, and whenever Ryan was beside her, Pam stuck to her story. Convinced that at least one of them was lying, detectives became frustrated with the couple, but without any hard evidence, they needed to look elsewhere. While digging through Ryan's past, they discovered Ryan had been actually dating two women at the time of the murders, Pam and another woman named Crystal Beelan. Detectives decided it was time to reach out to Crystal and see if she could shed any light on Ryan's whereabouts the weekend of the murders. At first, nothing new seemed to surface, and the detectives feared they were once again chasing down a dead end. Then, just as the interview was wrapping up, Crystal suddenly remembered one more detail, something detectives never expected to hear. Crystal recalled the time when Ryan showed her a picture of Gail in a bikini and asked, Isn't she hot? In fact, Ryan talked about Gail constantly and often mentioned how attractive he found her, something that unnerved Crystal immensely. But there was more, much more. After the murders, Ryan confided in Crystal that he'd experimented sexually with his sister when they were younger starting when he was 12 and she was 9, an act he repeated several times over the next three years. With such a dark secret unveiled in Ryan's past, detectives knew they couldn't ignore Ryan as a suspect any longer and began to question Ryan's motivation as Gail's probable murderer. Was it possible Ryan felt possessive of Gail and was jealous of her marriage to Rick? Or perhaps Ryan became worried Gail might tell Rick about their incestuous secret and was afraid of the wrath he'd face from the family if they'd learn what he'd done to his sister. Ryan never once mentioned anything of the sort during his interviews. He'd managed to keep this detail a secret for so long. When detectives asked Gail's sister Cheryl about the nature of the siblings' relationship, Cheryl became nauseous at the thought and admitted Gail had never confided in her about it. 
But before detectives could proceed any further, they needed more information, and they needed it fast. They believed they knew the one person who could give them the answers they needed, Pam. In September 2012, Detectives Repper and Blakely contacted Pam once more, asking to speak with her again. She agreed. On October 1st, Pam and Ryan arrived at the station. Detectives became all too familiar with Ryan's controlling tendencies when it came to interviewing Pam and knew they needed to get her alone. Somehow, Repper and Blakely managed to convince Ryan to wait outside while they spoke with her. At the beginning of their interview, Pam was friendly and polite, albeit a little subdued. However, as detectives began to gently press her for more information, her calm demeanor began to crumble, little by little. After only a few minutes, she admitted Ryan could be controlling, and after an hour, her entire facade shattered. For the first time in 25 years, Pam admitted Ryan wasn't with her on the night of Rick and Gail's murder but she claimed she didn't know where he was. In 1987, Ryan struggled financially and peddled drugs on the side to maintain his rundown apartment. Whenever he wasn't with Pam, she just assumed he was out selling drugs. Ryan's alibi, which kept him safe from scrutiny for over two and a half decades, was gone in an instant. Next, detectives brought Ryan in, point blank asking him, about his relationship with Gail. Instantly, Ryan responded by asking what Blakely meant. Detective Blakely said, you know exactly what I mean, sexually. Finally, he broke the silence and told detectives what happened was just kids play, equating the experience to playing doctor. He admitted to instances growing up where the two of them compared body parts as children, but told detectives it never went beyond that. He refused to admit anything else, and especially refused to admit he'd done anything to harm Rick or Gail. Detectives had no choice but to release him, but they hadn't heard the last of him. Over the next few days, Ryan bombarded the station with dozens of phone calls, leaving numerous voicemails, lambasting detectives for upsetting his wife and barking up the wrong tree. However, detectives Repper and Blakely weren't intimidated and set their sights on yet another interview with Pam. It was becoming clear, Pam still knew much more than she was letting on. On January 18, 2013, Repper and Blakely went to Pam's workplace so they could speak to her without Ryan around. It was plain to see Pam was living a life of subjugation and fear, trapped beneath her husband's thumb. Repper pleaded with Pam to do the right thing and tell them the truth. Pam's fragile, careworn voice finally spoke, and she agreed. She'd tell them what really happened on November 21st, 1987. As she spoke, Pam's voice cracked with emotion. Early Sunday morning, November 22nd, 1987, Rick appeared at Pam's apartment, disheveled and frantic. He was clearly distraught and held his head in his hands as he told Pam he'd shot Rick and Gail. When she asked why, he told her that Rick and Gail had become snobbish and they thought they were too good for everyone else. After telling Pam about what he'd done, 
he decided he needed to show her. That's when Ryan forced Pam into his car, along with her toddler, and took them both to Rick and Gail's home. Once inside, he made her look at the bodies, threatening her with a similar fate if she ever told anyone. And as Ryan pulled the pillow from Gail's lifeless face, he looked at her and asked Pam, Isn't she beautiful? As the words spilled from Pam's mouth, the anguish and terror that had been bottled up for 25 years poured free in a torrent of tears. But because of her confession, Pam was now in potentially grave danger. Ryan had already killed two people to protect his secret. He might not hesitate to do it again. Detectives knew they needed to arrest Ryan and bring him in. On January 18th, 2013, Ryan was arrested and detectives immediately alerted his sister Cheryl of the news. A feeling of relief mixed with deep sorrow and pain rushed through her. Relief at the closure she'd longed for for all these years, and sorrow for the answers she never wanted to be true. Ryan was charged with the murders of Rick and Gail Brink and held in custody until his trial which was scheduled for 2014. But Ryan wasn't ready to go to court without a fight. Six months leading up to his trial, Ryan sent Pam 29 letters from prison, pleading with her not to testify against him. Ryan told Pam she'd be judged by God for her lies, and he believed she'd been brainwashed by the police. He wrote, I think that now you are in this lie, you feel like you must follow through or get in trouble. But Pam ignored his warnings. After two and a half decades, the floodgates had finally opened and it was time for the world to hear the truth. She was ready to reveal everything she knew in hopes of securing justice for an innocent couple taken far too soon. In March 2014, Ryan's trial began, overseen by Judge John Halsing. Over 60 witnesses were gathered, prepared to speak their minds. But the most dominating presence in the witness box was Pam Weingarten herself. With a trembling voice, Pam spoke of two decades of silence in her marriage and threats to keep the secret Ryan had entrusted her with. Ryan remained incredulous that Pam was testifying against him and displayed regular outbursts hurling insults at Pam while she was on the stand until the judge threatened to have him removed. Defense attorney David Hall tried to argue Gail and Rick's home's history of ownership by a gang member smuggling drugs is what led to the couple's deaths. Defense also cross-examined Pam extensively, trying to catch her in a lie about Ryan's whereabouts, but Pam stood her ground and never faltered in her story steadily growing more confident as the trial dragged on. Crystal Bielan also testified, confirming Ryan's claims of a sexual relationship with Gail when they were in their teens. In his confession to her after the murders, he remorsefully claimed to have approached Gail for sex and then forced her to do it when she refused. In relation to his sexual past with Gail, Ryan claimed it was just comparing body parts and exploring, framing the experience as regrettable, but not an unforgivable one. Prosecuting attorney Lee Fisher stated in court that Ryan's story was a watered-down version of what actually happened 
stating, I don't call it sexual intimacy, I call it sexual molestation. The prosecution asserted that Ryan had two motivations for killing Rick Brink and his sister Gail. He was jealous of Rick's relationship with Gail and was terrified of their childhood secret getting out. Along with Pam, there was another star witness called on by the prosecution, a jailhouse informant that had been housed with Ryan prior to the trial. According to the inmate, Ryan talked non-stop about the murders, admitting to killing his sister and brother-in-law. Most ominous of all, Ryan told his fellow inmate he'd kill his other sister Cheryl as well for never letting the police forget about Gail after so many years. After three long weeks of emotional testimony interlaced with outbursts from Ryan, the jury retired to deliberate on March 14, 2014. When the jury returned with a verdict, Ryan refused to stand. Ryan Weingarten was found guilty of two counts of first-degree murder. A couple of weeks went by before Ryan was officially sentenced. However, he refused to accept Judge Holstein's verdict, protesting his innocence and verbally abusing the witnesses who testified against him. In an hour-long statement, Ryan proclaimed his innocence, calling the judge a liar and claiming he'd been framed. Judge Holstein responded with some choice words of his own. He stated, This was a brutal homicide. You're a brutal, cold-blooded murderer. Ryan continued to interrupt and argue with Judge Halsing, who finally asked Ryan if he needed to bind and gag him and said that a deputy would duct tape him if necessary. On April 21st, 2014, Ryan Weingarten was sentenced to two terms of life in prison without the possibility of parole. Outside the courtroom, Ryan's mother Dorothea was heartbroken, railing against the sentencing and crying out that the judge was wrong. Dorothea and one of Ryan's brothers were among his only defenders. For everyone else involved, it was a long-awaited sigh of relief. The grieving process for Rick and Gail could now truly begin. For Cheryl, it was a complex mix of emotions as she watched her little brother led away by police. For Pam, the damage done to her family was insurmountable. Ryan was loved by their family and his trial destroyed many of their relationships. Wedges were driven in between siblings, friends, and several family members who all blamed Pam, some for putting Ryan away and others for not speaking out sooner. The Trendway Corporation where Rick worked installed a plaque beneath his flagpole in honor of Rick and Gail. Nearly 27 years later, Chairman Don Haringa, who accompanied Rick's father the morning the bodies were discovered, was relieved when he could finally install another plaque beneath it which reads, Justice Served. After the trial, Haringa funded the Ottawa County Cold Case Support Fund, to which he donated $100,000 to support cold case efforts that were finally able to give him closure to the deaths of his dear friends. Solving a cold case brings closure. It also opens up old wounds decades after they've begun to heal, renewing pain and forcing the healing process to start all over. 
for Cheryl and Pam, their lives and their families will never truly recover. The only real sense of comfort comes from the knowledge that for the first time in 27 years, Rick and Gail Brink can finally rest in peace. I'd like to thank the following new Patreon supporters. Heather R., Jennifer P., Judy F., Star, Sherry K., Angela G., Taylor N., Brianna A., Grant B., Nicole S., Melissa G., Lauren H., Desiree M., Katie, Sean S., Mary A., Cornelia R., Nikki N., and Kat. The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. You can find our website by going to mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness. And on Twitter, using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerrorecords.com.au slash G-E. I 